The Spectator podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing a commitment to providing the space to perform. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I am Lara Prendergast. This week, May and Corbyn were dragged reluctantly to new positions on Brexit. So, have they lost control of their parties? And what does this all mean for a timely Brexit, or indeed Brexit at all? I also talked to our literary editor, Sam Leith, about the joys of video gaming. What's driving the success of Britain's £4 billion industry? First up, Brexit. Earlier this week, pundits were surprised by drastic changes in the Brexit positions of May and Corbyn. May has effectively given a green light to extend Article 50, and Corbyn has finally come out in support of a second referendum. James Forsyth writes in this week's cover article that their Brexit gambles risk the chances of a timely Brexit, and indeed the prospect of leaving at all. Our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, spoke to James, the MP Nick Bowles, and Sienna Rogers, editor of Labour List, a little earlier. James, in your cover piece in The Spectator this week, you write that both party leaders, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, have been dragged to new positions for fear of party splits. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's no secret that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want a second referendum. That is not his personal preference. I think he would quite like Brexit to happen, but not to get the blame for it. But in the last few days, he has been essentially pushed into saying that he will, that Labour will are now moving towards backing another public vote on Brexit. John McDonnell said last night that they'll put down an amendment when the meaningful vote comes, which could be as early as next week, backing a second referendum. And the reason he's, been, the reason he's doing that, essentially, is because he is worried about more MPs leaving the Labour Party, essentially. You know, all eight of the MPs who defected to the independent group want a second referendum. And I think the worry was that if Labour had stayed in its previous position, then more MPs would have gone. Theresa May has said for you know almost two years now that the UK is leaving on March 29th with or without a deal. She's been absolutely insistent on that. But this week, because of rebellion by three cabinet ministers and more junior ministers and the actions of people like Nick, Theresa May has had to say, don't worry, we won't leave on the 29th of March without a deal unless Parliament explicitly votes for it. And I'll also let Parliament vote to extend Article 50 if it wants to. Again, a position that Theresa May doesn't want to take. So we're seeing both party leaders forced into taking positions they don't want to take on Brexit by rebels, but including rebels on their own front benches. Nick, as James just mentioned, you're one of those MPs, perhaps you could call yourself a rebel, who has been calling for some time for Theresa May to consider an Article 50 extension if no deal starts to look likely. What do you think changed this week, which meant that she finally listened to those concerns and took action? Do you think it was just the sheer level of pressure? I think that probably the, the, the key shift uh, compared to the last time we tried, because as you'll remember, we tried a few weeks ago and were not successful. And what happened, I think, this time was that it's not that actually we managed to recruit many more conservative backbenchers to support the amendment that we were proposing and, and the bill that would have followed. It's that the Labour side managed to pull back some of the Labour MPs in 
leave seats who had either voted against our amendment or abstained last time. So their number in the sense of, of votes lost was going to go down. And then crucially, as James said, that the front bench of the, the government, the number of ministers and cabinet ministers and PPSs who were willing to say that that they would put their careers on the line and that they would vote for this amendment even against the whip, which obviously normally would cause them to have to resign, that number was higher and more solid. And though I think there were many attempts made to try and buy them off or persuade them that there'd be another time and high noon was perhaps not today, uh, that didn't work this time. And so then, you know, she, what she faced effectively was not only losing, but also losing a good chunk of her government in the process, at which point for any prime minister, it's much better just to uh, embrace it, however unwillingly, and make it your policy. Now, as a result of the events this week, Theresa May has promised MPs a vote to potentially extend Article 50 if her deal is voted down in two weeks' time. And that has led some ministers and some Conservative MPs to really turn on people such as yourself, Nick, who have campaigned for this. We saw Liz Truss at Cabinet suggest that the three Cabinet ministers, the Daily Mail free, as they have since been dubbed, who were publicly calling for Theresa May to consider an extension, were kamikaze MPs. Do you see yourself as a kamikaze Remain MP? No, certainly not. I mean, I, uh, I actually, Paul Goodman from Conservative Home has been good enough to point out that, that I'm, I shouldn't be described as a Remainer. I should be described as a soft Brexiter because I, my absolute preferred deal is uh, to leave to a position a bit like Norway's in what I tend to call the common market 2.0. But also I voted for the Prime Minister's deal and I will vote for it again next week and the following week and however many times she wants to bring it. So I believe that I am rather unlike the members of the ERG, are genuinely trying to achieve Brexit on time with a deal. It's just simply that my colleagues will not support her and therefore are risking a no-deal Brexit because, of course, many of them privately prefer it. And that is what I won't countenance. So whether it's kamikaze or not, that suggests I die at the end of it uh, and I'm rather hoping that that isn't the outcome but um, what I am insistent on is that it's not in the national interest uh, to leave without a deal but it is profoundly in the national interest to leave uh, with a deal. James do you think the pressure that has been put on Theresa May by MPs and ministers this week which has led to this promise of a potential delay does it make it harder for Theresa May to pass a Brexit deal? I don't think it necessarily makes it harder for a fast Brexit deal. I think, I think it does two things. On the one hand, it makes it more difficult for her to extract a, a meaningful concession from the EU. Because there is a view that if the UK could get into that kind of five minutes to midnight space, more things would be possible. Given that the EU believes that Parliament will vote for the extension, which I think is right, you know, you're never going to get into that five minutes to midnight space, certainly not this side of March 29th. So it pr- probably makes getting some something on the backstop harder than it otherwise would have been. I, I think there is though, an interesting question now, because what is quite clear is that Parliament won't let the UK leave without a withdrawal agreement. We, we can argue until the cows come home about whether that is the right position for Parliament to take, but the sheer parliamentary maths is you can't leave the EU without a deal. And that means that if Brexit is going to happen, a deal is going to have to pass. 
And I think the logic of that does make it a bit more likely that May's deal passes. Indeed, I think one of the, the crucial questions now is whether May's deal passes before Parliament kind of grabs control of the process and ends up pushing the, the UK towards a, a softer, more Norwegian-style Brexit of the type that Nick was just talking about. Sienna, it's not just Theresa May's hand that has been forced this week. We also have on our cover a picture of Jeremy Corbyn being stretched. When it comes to the decision by the Labour leadership to move a lot closer to effectively backing a second referendum as an option, what do you think the main trigger was for that? I think there's no doubt that many of the events that we've seen this week, including a certain suspension, basically have seen the independent group's formation and those resignations last week bouncing Jeremy Corbyn into doing things that he doesn't want to do. Now, on Monday, Corbyn surprised everyone, even some of his own front benchers who complained that they learned about it through the media, into announcing that Labour would properly back a second referendum now. And that means laying down or supporting an amendment that backs it the next meaningful vote. And, you know, this this was not done willingly. You know, before that PLP meeting on Monday, it took a three hour meeting with Keir Starmer trying to convince Jeremy that this was the right idea. So it was hard fought and and they've won, but actually no one's happy now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's true, I think, to say that Jeremy Corbyn hasn't really seemed to take this new policy full throttle and go out campaigning. I think on earlier this week when he gave a statement in response to Theresa May's Brexit update, I think he might have mentioned a second referendum once he in, did, yeah. in passing. Um, <laughs> how, is, how is this going to manifest itself in the coming weeks? Are, are we expecting to see, now that the amendment Jeremy Corbyn favoured of changing the government's negotiating position has failed, are we going to see the Labour leadership going on the airwaves and calling for a public vote? Uh, <laughs> I mean... They'll have to say that. They'll have to say what they're going to be doing, which is supporting it in terms of votes, perhaps not so much in terms of a very strong whipping operation and perhaps not in terms of campaigning. Now, there are groups, grassroots groups like Another Europe is Possible, who've cottoned on to this and said, you know what, you can't just vote for it. You've got to campaign for it as well. We want you to come to these marches. We want Jeremy to be there. I mean, all of this just isn't going to happen. There's going to be a lot of pressure. There are MPs like Wes Streeting said last night, you know, we can see what you're doing here. You're playing a very clever game and you're going to you're going to support it formally, but actually in practice you're not. And, you know, lots of people were quite surprised last night when Jeremy's reaction to the Brexit votes, so Labour's amendment, the official one, setting out the five demands, got defeated by an even larger margin than last time, by 83 votes. And Jeremy reacted by saying, yeah, OK, now we're backing another referendum, but also we're still pushing for our alternative deal. That's still happening, and lots of people were quite surprised by that, but Labour's very open about it. I mean, front benches have been posting these videos last night and this morning talking about our alternative, and it's clear that, you know, Laura Pidcock and Rebecca Long-Bailey, for instance, you know, they're not keen on another referendum idea, and they're going to keep going. And it, it's interesting, actually, because I think a lot of... I mean, obviously, a lot of it, Labour MPs are annoyed by this second referendum commitment, even though it was in the conference policy in September. But, you know, those those MPs who are annoyed by it are actually more the MPs that you wouldn't even expect. So there are people, for instance, it's interesting that Nick's here because, I mean, I've heard that the, the leader's office, Corbyn's office, are actually helping draft amendment for Common Market 2.0, you know, very quietly. 
So they've not given up on all those various Brexit solutions. And when it comes to Brexit, as we've just heard, both parties remain very divided and it doesn't seem as though it would be possible for either parties to successfully whip all of its MPs for a Brexit outcome. Nick, you've worked very closely with Yvette Cooper on your amendments and your efforts to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Do you think Brexit needs to be a cross-party effort in order to get a deal over the line? Yes, even if, and, and, and like James, I think that the Prime Minister now has much better chance of getting her deal through at some point in the next two weeks. Uh, and I think that is entirely due to, to the change in policy that we have forced on her uh, in terms of giving Parliament the option to rule out a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March. But I think she has a much better chance. But even if she does, it will still be cross-party because she'll need a dozen or maybe 20 or even 30 Labour MPs to support it to to have that chance. I actually think that what she should have done and what we will need to do if she is not able to get her deal through is is to actually establish from the start a cross-party process to establish where is the, the ground for compromise. And actually, I think it's fairly much hiding in plain sight. It lies somewhere between adding a permanent customs union to her deal, her political declaration, and at the other end, Common Market 2.0, the the Norway-style arrangement which would keep us in the single market. Somewhere between those two is where there is the potential for a majority, because once you get past the commitment to a referendum that many Labour MPs have and that that Plaid Cymru and the SNP and the Liberal Democrats all have as official party policy. Once you get past that, then you'll find that actually all of those groups basically want to be in the single market and in the customs union or something pretty damn close to a customs union. So once you then add some Tory MPs who can live with bits of that, you then have the makings of a, of a, of a stable cross-party majority. And one of the nervousnesses I have about her getting her deal through by a narrow squeak is that it might get the deal through, the withdrawal agreement, you know, the meaningful vote, but it's got to be sustained through various bits of legislation to actually be implemented. And that's why it would be much better to have a, a majority of 40 or 50, which might then survive than a majority of three or four that might fall apart. And we've had the launch of the independent group in the past fortnight, which has seen 11 MPs leave their parties and join that group. And one of the triggers does appear to be Brexit, the fact that Labour MPs are very unhappy with Jeremy Corbyn's position. Do you think that there's a chance, Nick, if Theresa May sticks on her current line, can't get her deal through and doesn't want to move, that you start to see more... Tories defecting over Brexit or do you think most MPs want to stay put just change the position? I think we're still quite a long way from that I have to say I don't think it's necessarily impossible to imagine at some point but I think it's more likely to be a response to a the election of a new leader and prime minister from perhaps the the right of the party or or, or, a, a particularly a hardline a Brexiteer. I don't think it's likely to happen in response to the Prime Minister's fortunes on, on the deal. And I think one of the things about the independent group, which has perhaps made it less likely, is that it is so defined 
by the commitment that they all share to the second referendum. Because you've got people like me who might agree with much with Anna Subri and Sarah Wollaston and, and Heidi Allen and many issues we would be in very similar place. But I'm implacably opposed to the second referendum. And there are lots of other people, in a sense, on my wing of the Conservative Party who are equally opposed. And given that the independent group has defined itself, that's its one sort of unifying theme. It's quite a big hurdle and quite a big barrier. And then finally, with talk of a meaningful vote, perhaps as soon as next week, James, when you, when we look at the numbers, there is an acceptance that she is going to need members of the European Research Group to get behind her deal. One theory doing the rounds is that Theresa May could offer to resign quite soon after, and that might win a few votes. What do you think it's going to take to get a significant chunk of the European Research Group to finally back this deal? So I was talking to one of the people who's actually going to go between number 10 and and the European Research Group, and they say, look, the extension isn't going to work because the European Research Group psychologically are determined not to be kind of forced into voting for May's deal. But that this is lodged in their heads, and that you, if you, the ca- the size of a carrot that would be required to get them to vote for the deal is now smaller than it was. The prerequisite is Jeffrey Cox coming back with something from Brussels that satisfies the DUP, mm-hmm. because I think if the DUP are satisfied, and remember that you know Nigel Dodds is a lawyer with a top law degree from Cambridge, you know if he says right, I think that legally works. It's quite hard to say I'm voting against this because I worry about what the backstop does to the union, and I'm more unionist than the DUP. You know I think that is that is a hard sell. I think there is a hardcore of the ERG who will want to vote against pretty much any deal. I think this establishment of this group of eight lawyers to look at it is interesting. I am told that the reason they have done this is that at the top of the ERG, there is a worry that Bill Cash is one of those people who wants to vote against everything. And that if they didn't have this kind of collection of whatever the um, the, the collective noun for a group of lawyers is, something polite, please. Uh, if you didn't have this, that Bill Cash would just come out and say what Jeffrey Cox has come back with is rubbish and we must all vote against it. They're trying to build something in so that they've got a bit of strategic time to think about it. So I think that's one thing. But then I think the second thing, you are definitely onto something because the political declaration is very vague. You can go almost anywhere from the political declaration. I think it's, I find it very odd when people say, I'm not going to vote for Prime Minister's deal because I want us to be in the EEA. Well, you can go to the EEA from the Prime Minister's deal, whereas there's no reason why you couldn't. So I think that if you're them, logically, you should want a Brexiteer to be the person who does phase two to ensure that this is, you know, that this is closer to Newfoundland than it is to, to Oslo. Uh, you know, and that, I think, is is the kind of crucial question. I mean, that's why May going will be one of the things. I also think from Theresa May's point of view, everyone thinks that she wants to kind of carry on regardless. But I think it is pretty obvious that if she did try and stay, she would she would lose in December quite badly when they, there can be another vote of confidence. And once she has got a deal through, for the first time in her premiership, she has a legacy to protect. She has something that she can come out and say, this is what I have done as Prime Minister. And I often think it's quite an interesting political question to think, how would you write the speech? And I think you could actually write a very good speech for her quitting after her deal has passed. You know, I took over at time of uncertainty. Mm. I've guided us to port. But, you know, this process has been divisive and the country now needs to move on and my party needs to move on. And part of that involves me moving on. I'm not saying that she's going to want to do that, but you can begin to see this. And I also think ultimately, if there are 20 to 30 votes for her deal, which could make the difference between her deal passing and not passing, and that requires a promise to go, is she really not going to give it?
And last question, Sienna. We know, as James touched on, there are about 20, 25 Brexiteers who are not going to want to vote for this, really, no matter what Geoffrey Cox brings back. So Theresa May is going to need Labour votes. And there are Labour MPs representing Leave seats. What is it going to take for her to get a significant chunk of Labour MPs to back her deal? I mean, frankly, it's kind of ridiculous that Labour has been bounced into the second referendum position when almost everyone acknowledges that it's changes to the political declaration that's needed in order to satisfy their demands. The five demands, all of those things, they fit into the political declaration. And, you know, the front bench knows that and lots of shadow ministers know that and lots of MPs. So it it is all about that. And actually, you know, making some changes there, saying that we're going to have some legally binding things on workers' rights, environmental protections, all of those kind of promises. I mean, obviously, she needs to stop doing this thing of uh, (laughs) here's a bribe, here's here's some money for your specific constituency, which only irritates Labour members and those MPs who will then go have to go back to their local parties and and say, oh, I I traded my vote for some money, which is not going to please anyone. It's the political stuff that she needs to go for. And I think it's entirely possible to get quite a lot of Labour support with that. Mm. That was Katie, James, Nick and Sienna. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls, and you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it? And finally, spectator readers probably aren't the target audience for the latest gaming phenomenons like Fortnite and The Witcher. But they've captured one person in our office, our literary editor, Sam Leith who writes in this week's issue about why he loves gaming and how many of them can rightly be considered art. Sam joins me now together with Harry Darwin, a 22-year-old professional gamer and one of the most successful pros in the industry. So Sam, listeners will probably know you most as The Spectator's literary editor and the host of our books podcast, but in this week's magazine you also reveal that you're a fan of video games. Can you start by explaining what it is you like about them? Well, I think partly it's an attachment to my childhood because I just from, you know, I'm old enough so that the earliest games I played were things like Asteroids and Defender. I just adored them from a very young age. And as they've got bigger and better and more complex and more attractive, I've never kind of gone off them. And I've always, I think, you know, partly they are just fun and they're designed to be fun and they're cleverly neurologically designed so that you know you're always just oh one more go one more go this is great but I think also I've always felt with computer games that you're putting yourself into another world and that they're kind of attractive in that way that they take you out of the here and now and into a kind of completely separate sort of rule-based universe in which as I say in my piece you know there's that rather kind of attractive thing that if you screw it up you can go back and do it again. And what sort of worlds are you going into? Well, just lately and very childishly, I've been playing Batman Arkham Knight. But the most recent one that I played all the way through that I adored was a thing called Witcher 3, which is a kind of open world sword and sandals fantasy game. I mean, Stephen Johnson says in his book, Everything Bad is Good for You, which I think is a very smart look at this sort of phenomenon. You know, it's very easy for people to be put off by confusing form with content because they go, oh, God, this has got dragons in it or this has got the Joker in it or this has got spaceships and monsters in it. And think that that, that's the sort of extent of the engagement. But actually, most of the way that games work, or lots of really successful games work, 
it's the playability, the interactivity. So it's actually kind of the structure of the game, the tasks you're achieving or failing to achieve in them that determine the playing experience. And you could be shooting elves and you could be shooting goblins and you could be shooting space monsters. But actually, it's kind of the shooting dynamic, if it's that sort of game, that's very often the attraction. Harry, you're a professional gamer. I mean, imagine some of our listeners might not even know that that is a profession. I mean, can you start by explaining how that works and and what sort of work you, you do as a professional gamer? Yeah, sure. So as a professional gamer, there's kind of loads of different revenue streams that you can tap into to to make your money. For me, there's the starting one has been the actual being a professional gamer is being a team to play under them. Very similar to as if you were a professional football player and Chelsea wanted you to play for them, they, you would be tied into a contract which is very similar to that. So I would play for a team called EIG for a long time and I would play under their name or I might stream under their name, which is basically me playing a game with an audience kind of watching. That company can put their brands on your page. They'll use you as promotion. But there's also other things like coaching. So I do a lot of coaching where, same as like a football coach, you coach kids to kind of improve their skills in football. I do the same with multiple games kind of online where people are wanting to get better and improve. There's the, the streaming side on your own. So you would stream, it's almost like being a, a YouTuber. You would do, do a bit of streaming and, and YouTube and you'd make money from like revenue share, donations, subscriptions. There's vast amount of ways you can kind of make money as a, as a pro gamer. So tomorrow I'll be, in, I'll be moving up to London for a couple of days and doing some promotion for a, for a company. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. There's lots of kind of new ways that are emerging that you can kind of make some revenue from being really good at video games. And are there games that you specialise in? Fortnite, and there's a new game called Apex Legends. Sam, have you played Fortnite? <laughs> I'm afraid I haven't played Fortnite, actually, largely because I've got kids who are just old enough that I don't want them to catch me playing it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I've played first-person shooters out the wazoo. In fact, I once had my jibs handed to me by Jonathan Fatality Wendell at Quake, and I've never quite recovered. He was one of the first pro gamers. So, I mean, I, I know what you're talking about when you're talking about Fortnite. <laughs> and Harry, I mean, how did you get into becoming a professional gamer? Were you just always a fan and then went pro? It's been years in the making, really. I've been gaming since I was a kid and just, I guess, putting all those hours into games and refining my skills, constantly getting better to kind of be one of the best players in, in Europe and compete at that super high standard. But it's, been, it's definitely been a long journey of practice. And what have been the major changes in the industry that you've noticed during that time? I think the main changes in the industry and why it flipped on its head and people could start making some serious money from it was really the audience that it brought 10 years ago. There wasn't 500,000 people watching a tournament. Obviously, that's when sponsors and companies start coming in wanting to advertise their product. And that really is the main drive for monetizing the kind of the esports industry is really that viewership that that they can pull and some tournaments will get more more viewers than some tv shows even some professional sporting matches i'm I'm sort of interested to ask you know as someone who's really involved in that world do you think that there's a kind of aspect or a limit to the viewerships for esports given that if you don't play the game yourself 
you often can't follow the action at a very high level. I mean, I've watched people playing, you know, things like Warcraft or playing those real-time strategy games like Starcraft and so on, where, or even Street Fighter, where unless you really, really know what you're doing, you can't follow the action on the screen. Do you think that's true of first-person shooters like the ones you play? To an extent, but that's normally where the main viewership comes from also. The players that aren't necessarily as good at the game... You do have to have that basic understanding because if you've, let's say, you've never ever have no idea what Fortnite is, and then you go and watch it, it's going to be hard for you to kind of keep up. But if you have a basic understanding, you've played the game a little bit, then that's the attraction for the people watching is they understand how the game kind of works. They they've played it a little bit, and when they go and watch their kind of gaming idols, they're so good at the game. It's exactly the same as watching like a pro football match. Like you can go to the park and play football with your friends, but when you go home, you like to watch. Chelsea versus Man United because their standard of football is so it's, it's, it's lovely to watch the way they pass the ball around it's exactly the same with gaming so when the amateurs are watching the professionals they love the kind of moves they're pulling off the way they're playing it's enjoyable to watch for them but obviously if you have no idea about the game you're watching you never played it before you have no idea what's going on some of these games can be very complex and for them for a new viewer it might be a bit intimidating or they, they might have no idea what's going on so they might tune out but with these games like Fortnite and the new game apex legends they've have they get so many so many people are playing them that they can pull such a large number of viewers when these streams and gaming events go on and i think it's just it's really just the start the the graphs and the figures from the last five ten years the growth of esports and the gaming industry is absolutely massive and i don't know when it's going to kind of slow down but it's an exciting new industry that has lots and lots of potential. Sam, one of the ideas you've discussed in your piece is that when people worry that games are isolating and that it's a solitary pursuit, but from what Harry's saying, it doesn't sound like it is. I mean, should people be worried? or well, is it... I, don't, I don't think there are... I mean, you know, as I say in my piece, there are so many different types of games that any generalisation you make about them is going to be, you know, at some level wrong. I think that... As I say, something like Fortnite or you know any of these games that you play online in what back in the good old days used to be called a LAN party, you're going to be communicating with all the other people you're playing with, whether it's sort of shout, shouting abuse at them while you kill them, or you know encouraging them to bring you a medipack quickly before you bleed out or whatever the hell it is. So actually. Many of these games are very communal experiences, and of course you can go down a rabbit hole and play a one-player game for hundreds of hours and drop dead in your seat. But that actually doesn't seem to be the way that the industry's going. I mean, there are there are two tracks, but in fact, the open world massively participatory game in which lots and lots of people are involved seems to be much more popular. Now. I don't know whether that's, that's your experience as well. Well, yeah, I agree. So the reason why gaming is so enjoyable and so many people like it is the social aspect. That's what's really kicked it off into that, that next level from those single-player games. They can be fun, but what grips more people is the social aspect so my friends that i've met in australia i can go online and spend a few hours gaming with them some friends in america that i've met on my travels i can go online and have a catch-up with them so the social aspect of gaming is yeah, is really enjoyable what's what keeps people there really i would say more than the game itself actually i had a bunch of real life friends who for a period when we were all playing one game together, I wouldn't see them from one year to the next normally, but you know we saw each other every week for a period of about a year because we were constantly you know, in Azeroth picking up dragons. Dropping. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> I love the, the social aspect of, of gaming. 
And just finally, when I I I don't know how to game. What would both of you recommend as a kind of good entry point game for someone like myself who hasn't really done it before? One of the big market holders is, is mobile games. So you could even you don't even need to invest in like a PC or an Xbox or PlayStation. But a big market is, is just on the mobile phone. So you can start any kind of like mobile phone game. And now these games like Fortnite and PUBG and Apex, they've got mobile phone versions now. And I know that a massive chunk of the market is in places like India, where they have a billion people living there. Not all of them have access to a PC, but the majority of them will have a mobile phone. So that's where they kind of start gaming. Yeah, I'd kind of endorse all that, but only say... Maybe if the thing that puts lots of people off is the reaction times needed and the things coming at you and the speed of you know, getting the controls up, there are lots of games, puzzle games like Monument Valley, which are very pretty and very soothing and very interesting and involving, where you can spend as long as you like thinking about it before something comes and blows you up. In fact, nothing comes and blows you up in that game at all. Thank you, Sam and Harry. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts from. We always like to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's issue, you'll be able to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Tony Abbott, Fraser Nelson on Jacob Rees-Mogg and Freddie Gray. Plus, we've got a fantastic offer this week. You can get 12 issues for just £12, plus a £20 John Lewis voucher at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. The Spectator podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing a commitment to providing the space to perform.